Good morning. Imagine with me, just for a moment, imagine a writer crafting a story, developing characters and relationships that grow and change as they journey through difficulties, as they encounter surprise, plot twists and turns, as they explore the deep themes of purpose, love, hope, life, and death. Imagine a director lifting the story from its two-dimensional pages and creating a three-dimensional work of art. Imagine actors bringing the characters to life, expressing their innermost thoughts and pain through their monologues and dialogues and gestures. Notice how the costume makers add depth and realism to the characters through the textures and colors of makeup and fabrics. Notice how the set designers ground the story in a place and a time. Notice how the lighting technicians enhance the rainbow of changing moods throughout the journey. Listen to how the musicians add drama through soft ballads and tumultuous crescendos and silences. Feel the heartbeat of the dancers as they interpret these grand themes through their choreographed movements. Sense the energy of the audience. It is through combining the diversity of so many talents that expresses the story in great fullness, making the work of art an exquisite masterpiece. On a good night, the performers and the audience alike experience transcendence together as all are lifted out of the theater and transported into the world of the story. For me, keeping this kind of picture in mind helps me understand a little bit about what Paul was speaking about in the second chapter of his letters to the Philippians. This was his much-beloved church, Paul's favorite church, as Ryan spoke of last week. Paul commends them for how they have shared comfort and consolation in Christ, how they've engaged in partnership with the Spirit, how they've loved one another, with tender affection. It's a beautiful picture of unity in the church. It seems that all the parts were working together, all the players were in their roles. But something wasn't working quite right because Paul admonishes them to go even deeper and says, Make my joy complete, be of one mind and in full accord. Paul is not calling them to homogeneity, to think and act exactly the same way. But he is calling them to radical oneness. He's calling them to use all of their energy to focus on their one purpose. Imagine what would happen to our theater production if the lead actor and the lead dancer and the lead singer were all in competition with one another trying to outdo one another, vying for the grandest applause. Suddenly the harmony of the whole is thrown off, and telling the story is no longer the main focus. 
Paul is addressing power struggles within the church leadership of the Philippians. He wants them to refocus on telling the story of Jesus in all its fullness. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Look out for the interests of others. Paul then uses Jesus' attitude of humility as the template for the church to follow. Jesus set aside his power and position and came into our world as one of us. As a baby, he wielded no power. As the son of a common carpenter, he had no rank or social position. He defeated Satan's temptations in the desert because he had no desire for self-sufficiency or for selfish ambition or for self-preservation. He relied entirely on the Father's guidance and provision. He regarded prostitutes and tax collectors as better than himself. He healed people on the Sabbath because it was in their best interest. His sole purpose was to show everyone how much God loved them. His sense of purpose and his sense of oneness with the Father and the Spirit were so strong that he even allowed himself to die a criminal's death on a cross. So focused was his mission. This is an epic story, and it deserves to be told in all of its fullness. Paul uses it to help define his sense of purpose. He models his day-to-day life as a humble reflection of the obedience of Jesus and uses his imprisonment and his suffering to proclaim God to whoever is nearby, to prison guards who may never have heard the good news of Jesus any other way. And Paul encourages the Philippians to do the same, to frame their day-to-day lives within this epic story of Jesus, to reflect love through their radical oneness of mind and purpose and love. So what does that look like? In our daily life, how do we allow the story of Jesus to frame our sense of purpose? It's unlikely that any of us will face imprisonment, torture, or death for our faith. But that doesn't excuse us from reflecting on what an attitude of humility might look like for us in our context and in our time. And as I thought about it, I discovered there are several kinds of humility that we can address. One of them is how we relate to our positional power. And in our culture, many of us hold a position of power in one sphere of influence or another. How do we regard our power? Is it something that helps make up for our feelings of insecurity or inadequacy? Is it a tool for more personal gain? Power and position in themselves are not good or bad, but our attitudes towards them, our motivations for using them, do matter. 
If we follow the example of Jesus, our power and position are used in the service of others for their good, not for our own gain. What about relational humility? Jesus was equal to God, but he did not exploit that relationship to bully or diminish others. We are not equal to God. God is creator. We are created. God is infinite. We are finite. The full truth of all of who God is is far beyond what we can think or imagine or understand with our limited perspectives and our finite brains. As we attempt to discover God together, yes, we have the Bible to go on. We have our history of Christianity. We have our culture. We have all kinds of things that we can use to kind of try and figure out what is God like? Who is he really? But it is empty conceit to proclaim that we know anything about God with absolute certainty. It is outright arrogance to presume that we are the gatekeepers of who is in and who is out of God's grace. None of us can see with clarity. Let us never exploit our relationship with God to make us feel superior or to diminish others. Instead, let us gently offer our insights and our experiences and our ponderings and our musings for the sake of encouraging each other as we journey through this life together. I've also been wondering about scientific humility and if we could apply that to our theology in some ways. Much of theology right now, especially on social media, is currently about entrenching and buttressing a position to win a debate or an argument that often devolves into personal attacks. What if we could take a more experimental approach? Suppose I present a theological thought and ask you to help me test it out. We can explore if it's consistent with scripture, if it works in day-to-day experience, if it brings dignity to all, or if it favors some over others, if it leads to more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control? Does it lead towards or away from radical oneness? What if it's the exploration itself that is the important part And I don't need to prove that I'm right, and you don't need to prove that I'm wrong. Can we keep a conversation going and build better theology over time and with experience and in a constantly changing context? Is it okay to admit when we're wrong without feeling humiliation? Is it okay to let go of a position that's no longer relevant or useful without feeling like we're losing our faith. I offer a practical example from my own life. So let's think through that a little bit more. 
a few years ago, I was briefly introduced to someone who had a feminine name, so I assumed she was female. A few weeks later, I saw her briefly, but was confused because her hairstyle and clothing were very masculine. Maybe I had heard her name wrong. To be honest, I was uncomfortable around this person, and I felt a little embarrassed that I couldn't figure out, male or female. A little while later, I had the opportunity to have a more in-depth conversation, and they disclosed that they self-identified as a non-binary person. And it's not that I'd never chatted with a non-binary person before, so I had to question myself on why I would miss something that seemed rather obvious in hindsight. This was a humbling experience for me. Upon further reflection, I realized that my internal filtering system was deficient. We all have these filtering systems. They're a shorthand for our brain, uh, helping us to identify if a situation is safe or not, and to help us know how to respond. We all have these filters. They're all a little bit different for each of us. They come from our culture, our family, our heritage, our experiences. For me, if I walk into a room full of women, I expect topics of conversation to include babies, cooking, and crafts. If I walk into a room full of men, I'm more prepared for conversations about sports and cars and home renovations. Of course, I meet women who love sports and men who love cooking, but my brain is pre-programmed with a sinister set of expectations. And I realized that my brain doesn't even have the category of non-binary in it, let alone any expectations of what might, kind of conversation there might be. But it was important for me to pay attention to this dissonance that I felt so that I could challenge my filtering system so that I could genuinely meet and love the person in front of me rather than staying locked in my stereotypes. And this is just one example of the thousands of moments that we each need to explore as we collectively learn to break down the barriers of sexism and racism and homophobia. And then the self-reflection led to theological reflection. When I was a new Christian in my late teens, I wondered why Paul's letters were only addressed to brothers. Surely there were women around back in the day. Someone assured me that brothers was intended to be inclusive of all who were present, but I did not feel included. But when I read a translation that explicitly addressed brothers and sisters, I felt relieved and excited and validated. I no longer had to wonder if I was included or not. It seemed like a small change, but the language of inclusivity was and is important to me. So now I have this third category of non-binary embedded in my filtering system. Brothers and sisters no longer seems sufficient. My experience and my self-reflection have brought up new questions. So this is my experimental theological thought. Would it be better 
a better reflection of the intended inclusivity, inclusivity pardon me, if the letters were addressed explicitly to brothers and sisters and non-binary persons. Or maybe a more neutral phrase, siblings in Christ. I'm attempting to be a good ally to those in the queer community, so I honestly welcome feedback on this. I don't want to assume that what was helpful for me to feel included will be the same for others. I admit, I need my community to break through my assumptions and my blind spots. My hope is that together we can humbly find ways to take steps towards radical oneness with each other and with God. And humility is such a small offering when compared to the glory of God that has yet to be revealed. For now we see imperfectly from our limited perspectives. But in his exaltation, we will see Jesus face to face in all his glory. The climax of the story of Jesus will be the most epic reveal party of all time. Every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. The joy, the cheers, the laughter, the exuberance, the revelry, the backslapping, the high-fiving will be far beyond what any Game 5 Oilers fan can pull together. I think there's going to be some slow claps. Amazing. I didn't see that coming, Jesus. It's beyond what I could have imagined in a million years. I think other would just be stunned into silence, dumbfounded, unable to begin to express the depth of emotion. As we look around and we celebrate with our family and our friends and our loved ones, And as Jeremy preached a couple of weeks ago, the gospel of Jesus is only good news if it's good news for everyone. Just as the prisoners in the Philippian jail reconciled in Jesus and celebrated together, so we and our enemies will be reconciled when we are called caught up together in Jesus. And I don't want to minimize the unspeakable atrocities that have been committed throughout history and even this past week. We need to mourn and grieve these things and find ways to make meaningful change happen in the here and now. But this is the hope that I have. I believe that the scope of Jesus' salvation is so much greater than the worst that humans have inflicted on each other. In the fullness of salvation, there will be no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female, no jailer or prisoner, no perpetrator or victim, no oppressor or oppressed, no categories, no polarities of us and them. There will only be us, all of us. And all the divisions and damage caused by our selfish human ambition for power and position 
will fall away in Jesus' healing, reconciling, and restoring mercy and grace. The result of Jesus' work will be the fulfillment of radical oneness. The oneness of God, expressed in the loving community of three distinct persons, will embrace, infuse, and commune with the radical oneness of humanity expressed in the loving community of billions and billions of people. I'm going to say that one more time. That was a mouthful. (laughs) The oneness of God expressed in the loving community of three distinct persons will embrace, infuse, and commune with the oneness of humanity expressed in the loving community of billions and billions of diverse individuals. But until then, let us encourage one another to continue to work out our salvation in awe and with humility. For is is God at work in us, enabling us to will and to work for his good pleasure? It is God who longs to reveal his love to the world, even through us, while we're still in the process of receiving the fullness of Jesus' healing, reconciling, and restoring mercy and grace.